I've got a question to start you off. Which is worse, to live with a bad government or to live with no government? Is it worse to live in a country with a bad government or to live in a country with no government? Now, by bad government, of course, there's all sorts of things that you might mean. You might just mean incompetent or perhaps an incomplete government. Or you might mean even an immoral government or a harsh government. Is it worse to live under a bad government or under no government at all? I wonder how you might answer that. And I think if we, if we think about it, well, of course, we've, we've got to say part of it, the answer depends upon just how bad the government is. But for the most situations, we would say it's better to live under a bad government than under no government. The reason being that experience and history shows us that when there is no government, things very quickly descend into anarchy and chaos. Now, if you want some uh, trite examples of that, you can look at, for example, there's a number of teachers in the room. How quickly does the classroom descend into chaos when the teacher leaves the room? Similarly, if you work in an office or in a factory, how quickly does productivity fall during that week when the boss is off for his summer holidays? Or also, we could look at more severe examples from history. So you could think back to 2003 when the US and Britain invaded Iraq. And that, that invasion brought hopes of freedom and liberation from the people, from Saddam Hussein's regime. They were hoping for freedom from the violence that he'd wrought upon the people. And yet when they ousted Saddam Hussein from his government, all that that did was create a a power vacuum. And for the decade that followed, what you had was rival insurgencies, rival ethnic groups rising up to try and seize that power. And civil war broke out across the country, and the suffering and the oppression spread to far more people than it ever had done under Saddam Hussein's regime. And so in that condition, you would say that, well, no government ended up being even worse than that bad government, as bad as it was. And these examples are, of course, something of a challenge to those who might hold that, well, actually, humans, we're all good inside, really, and given the chance, we we know the right thing to do. These examples from history and daily life show us that, actually, that's not the case. The human condition is sin. It's wickedness in our hearts. And our tendency as humans is to rebel, to try and usurp, to try and reject the authorities that are over us. And so the rule of authority and the governments that are over us, therefore, are a mark of God's mercy. They're given by God in order to control us and help us and for our benefit. Government and authority is a necessity for all areas of human life in order to restrict those sinful tendencies that are rampant throughout humanity. So the instruction that God gives to us that we've read in Romans chapter 13 should come as no surprise. Chapter 13, verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities. That's my message today. That's what I'm here to tell you. That is God's word for your life. That's God's will for the way he wants you to live. 
That's God's message that he's brought to you today. Submit to the authorities. It's not a glamorous thing to do. It's not necessarily a heroic thing to do. It won't look particularly inspiring on your Instagram page. It's unlikely to go noticed by most people. It might at times be an an inconvenience. It probably at times will cost you money. And almost certainly cost you time and, and be a nuisance. It's not going to give you any exciting stories to add to your Christian testimony. People aren't going to count you an inspiration for following this instruction. And yet God's word to you is, submit yourselves to the governing authorities. Submit yourselves to the governing authorities. And what I want to consider this morning, now that we've, now that we've understood God's word to us, is to consider the reasons that he gives us for doing so. Now, this isn't the only place in the New Testament where Christians are told to submit. There's all sorts of commands throughout the New Testament to all sorts of Christians, and basically every Christian has a command at some point to submit. So children are told to submit to their parents. Slaves are told to submit to their masters. Wives are told to submit to their husbands. Christians are told to submit to the elders within the church. All Christians are told to submit to other Christians within the church. And of course, every Christian, most importantly, is to submit to God. Now in Romans 13, the emphasis quite clearly is on submitting to the governing authorities. Um, That means the rulers of our country, the parliament, the, the laws of our land, and those, of course, who enforce those laws. And much of our application today will be focused on that area of life. However, the principles that Paul uses in order to teach us submit to the governing authorities, those same principles can be used to apply to most of those other areas of submission that we're called to. So what reason does Paul give us for submitting? Verse 1, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for, or because, there is no authority except that which God has established. Whatever authority structure exists above us, whether that's parents, whether that's elders in the church, whether that's the tax office, whether that's the local planning department, whether it's your boss at work, whether it's the police force, whatever authority structure that exists above us has been put there, has been established by God. So that means that... Submitting to the authorities is not just a simple matter of making sure that you don't do anything illegal. Paul's message is going beyond don't don't do anything illegal. Of course it includes that, but it includes more than that. Just like there are all sorts of authorities, there are also all sorts of ways of submitting. So Paul, once he gets to the end of his little section, verse 7, for example, is going to give us different ways that we should submit. Verse 7, give to everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, pay revenue. Okay, so they're tied up with the laws in this land, aren't they? If you don't pay your taxes, well, somebody will be knocking on your door, take you to court, or you could end up in prison. Okay. But there's more than just an issue of obeying the law. 
if you all respect, still in verse 7, if you all respect, pay respect. If you all honour, pay honour. Therefore, this chapter, this passage, isn't just about doing those things which are enforced by the government. It isn't just doing the things that you might get caught out for if you don't do them. This chapter is about issues of the heart. This, issue, this chapter is about issues that we do in secret as well as what we do publicly. This chapter is about as much as what we think as it is about what we do. And so if we're going to take this passage seriously, it means if we're going to submit to the authorities, it means we're going to do that even when we know we won't get caught out if we don't. If we're going to take these words seriously, it means we're going to submit to the authorities even when it seems like all those around us don't need to bother doing that. If we're going to take God's instruction to us seriously, it means that we're going to submit to the authorities even when the world isn't looking. Even when only God is the one who will know whether we've submitted or haven't submitted. So whether we're filling in that tax return or the expenses claim, you know how easy it is to put in a wrong number, to gain a little extra back, because you deserve it really, don't you? Nobody will know. You'll, you'll never get found out. And they've got loads of money anyway. They can spare a little bit extra for you. Submitting to the authorities means, no, I won't cheat on that tax return. I will do as I'm supposed to. Submitting to the authorities in this way means that when you're the only one in the office, you don't reduce your workload. You don't take it easier. You don't sit back and relax and while the time away. You don't cheat your hours sheet and put in a few extra 15 minutes on the end of the day because nobody saw when you really left. Submitting to the authorities as this passage teaches means that we'll, be, uh, we'll act with integrity even when nobody else is watching. Submitting to the authorities in this way is going to affect all sorts of areas of life. The way that we bank, the way that we uh, do our home improvements, the way that we drive, the things that we might write on our CV when we apply for jobs. It's even going to affect the way that we talk about politics and politicians. Submitting to the authorities in this way means that we must learn to disagree with somebody without necessarily disrespecting them. This passage has implications for all sorts of areas of life. Now, at this point, some of you might be asking the question, why? Why is this passage uh, in Romans? Why has Paul focused on this, this seemingly small issue of submitting to the authorities? Even though, yeah, it does touch a, a large area of life. Why must we be so, so scrupulous in our commitment? Perhaps the cynical ones among you might be wondering, ah, isn't this just a throwback to the time when the church and the state were more closely linked? Isn't this passage just a tool to coerce the innocent and to keep the power in the hands of the rich and the governments? Well, no, not, that's not what's going on. These words were written by Paul to Christians at a time when the Roman Empire ruled the world. At a time when Christianity was just about tolerated in most places. 
And yet, less than a decade after these words were written, Christians would find these words teaching them to submit to a government that would actively persecute them. These words would be teaching Christians to submit to a Roman Empire that was seeking them out in order to kill them, in order to publicly torture them, for no other reason than the fact that they are Christians. And that pattern would continue from the very first century for about 250 to 300 years following. These words aren't a tool used by the governing authorities in order to coerce us and to control us. These are the words of God, given through Paul the Apostle, teaching us the right way to live as Christians. The reason that these words are given is because of our, our submission to the authorities is to be done as part of our submission to God. Just consider the context that they come in. Um, a few weeks back, we looked at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And when we got to chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we said those verses are like the pivot point for the book of Romans as a whole. You've got chapters 1 to 11. And those 11 chapters are describing the great mercy of God that he's shown us. And then you get these two little verses at the beginning of Romans 12. And they then set the scene for all of, basically, the rest of the book of Romans. They say, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. In view of God's mercy that has been described in chapters 1 to 11, get ready to give your lives to God in every possible way. To be a living sacrifice to God. And so the first week we thought about how that means we ought to reject the patterns of this world. Don't live with the, with the ambitions and goals of the world around us, but instead be changed by the Spirit renewing our minds. In chapter 12, verse 3 to 8, we thought about how that meant we should interact with others in the church, how we should find our place in the church to serve and to benefit the other members of the body. Last week, we thought about how that means we ought to love our neighbour and to do good to those around us. And this week, Paul's saying, being obedient to God in this way means submitting to the authorities. All of this is part of offering our bodies as living sacrifice. All of this is part of living for God. You also see this argument in this passage. Let's have a look at verse 2. Consequently, he who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. What's Paul's argument? Paul's saying, if God is the one who has established all these sources of authority, if God put them there, then if you rebel against that authority, then by implication, you're rebelling against God. When I was a child, I had, uh, well, I still do, I, I have three brothers and one sister. And there's five of us in, within six years of each other. So we're all quite close together. And having this little workforce in the house, my mum and dad often put us to good use, you know, give us jobs to do. And it was a right pain because, of course, there's many, many other things that you'd rather be doing. And so at times you try and coerce or force your siblings to, to try and get you to help. And there's different ways that, that, I, that I learnt that I could try and coerce my siblings into helping me out. 
One is perhaps trying to persuade them, uh, trying to ask them nicely to help and, uh, and get alongside me. It wouldn't often work. Sometimes you could try and bargain with them. If you help me do this, I will give you such a thing, or I will help you with another. That sometimes worked. I was one of the biggest, so I could also use threatening language. If you don't do this, okay. I wasn't a Christian back then, okay. But the other way, and perhaps the most effective way, was if you you could use authority. Now, of course, I had no authority of my own. I'm just a sibling. I'm, I'm, I'm alongside them in that sense. But there was nothing more satisfying than running to one of my siblings with a big, smug grin on my face. Dad says, you've got to help me do the washing up. Okay. Dad says, you've got to help me do the gardening. Okay. All of a sudden, you've got this authority that you can leverage against your sibling. Now, it's not my authority. I'm still just alongside them. But I have this authority. And whatever words come out of my mouth, that's the thing that they'll be doing. But the authority isn't my own. The authority is given me from my dad or my parents or whoever. And what Paul's saying is the authority that the governments wield is not their own. The authority that the governments have is given to them by God. And so by implication, to rebel against those authorities is to rebel against the God who gave them that authority. Consider for a moment who Paul might be trying to convince with this line of reasoning. Who is he speaking to? Who would find this to be a persuasive argument? I would say it's it's almost certain that Paul isn't trying to speak to non-Christians here, is he? Think about it. Why would a non-Christian, why would somebody who is outside the church, why would somebody who hasn't repented of sin, why would they find it at all convincing that authority is established by God? Why would they find it a problem? Why would they find it an issue if they reject that authority? They wouldn't at all. You see, for those who are outside of the church, for those who've not repented of sin... Sin is, ultimately, a rejection of God's authority. And for those who are living a life marked by sin, all their actions, anyway, are driven by sin. Driven by that rejection of God. Now, I'm not saying by this that, oh, a person can't be a good citizen unless they're a Christian. I'm not saying that all non-Christians must, by by happenstance, break the law. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that a non-Christian's life is marked by sin. And that characterises all of their actions, whether they, whether they like it or not. That's what the Bible teaches. Sin has us as its slaves until we are freed from it by Jesus Christ. So a non-Christian isn't going to be persuaded by these words. Because their sin that still works in their heart would cause them to reject God's authority anyway. Instead, Paul is speaking to Christians... Paul is speaking to people who, from chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, have already received the mercy of God. Paul's speaking to people who've already received God's mercy and are seeking to offer their whole lives as living sacrifices to him. And that also means that chapter 13 isn't about what we do in order to get right with God. 
If you've come along this morning and you're wondering, how is it that I can be forgiven? If you've come along this morning and thinking, how is it that I can be made right with God? Well, let me tell you, these verses from chapter 13 don't give you the answer. They're not the answer to your question. You shouldn't go away from this morning thinking that, oh, okay, good citizenship is what I must do in order to get into God's good books. Good citizenship is what I must do in order for God to accept me. No. If you want God to accept you, if you want forgiveness, you've got to look to chapters 1 to 8. You've got to be looking at that mercy that Paul has described, that God shows to us. You've got to receive the free gift of righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. These verses are for Christians who've already submitted their lives to God and who want to live out the reality of that faith. By the way, I want to focus on another very practical consideration that the authority of the governments uh, leads us to consider. Last week, from chapter 12, verse 19... We heard that Christians should not take revenge on their enemies. Our duty, instead, is to love our enemies, we heard. To feed our enemies, to give them something to drink, to to do good to them. But not to take revenge, to do good to our enemies. And that leaves a question. What about those who are in situations of abuse? What about those who are stuck in, for example, domestic violence? What about those who are being unfairly dismissed at work? What about those who are the victims of discrimination? What about those who are caught up in extortion or modern-day slavery or human trafficking or whatever else it might be? There are all sorts of ways that people suffer at the hands of abusers. Do the verses in chapter 12, especially verse 19, do they mean... That if you're a Christian in that situation, you should just do nothing about it. Ignore it. Or, even worse, try and and love your enemy and, and do good to them. That's what the verse says. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. No, not at all. What I want to tell you this morning is that if you are in a situation of abuse, even as a Christian you have every right to take that situation to the governing authorities. Why do I say that? Well, let's have a look again at those verses. Yes, verse 19 says, do not take revenge. And I'm not taking anything away from that verse. Obey that verse. Okay? Do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. Chapter 12, verse 19 is saying, it's not your place to get revenge upon your enemy. It's not your place to get revenge on your abuser. God will bring the revenge. God will bring the justice. But, chapter 13, verse 4. God might bring that justice through the governmental authorities. The government authorities are God's servant to do you good. If you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoing. If you are being bullied at school, it is not an unchristian thing to do to take that to your parents or to your teachers and ask for your help. 
If you are being discriminated against at work or unfairly treated or underpaid, it is not an unchristian thing to do to take that to the authorities. The authorities are God's servant to bring justice upon the wrongdoer. If you are stuck in a situation of domestic violence, it is not an unchristian thing to do to report your husband or your wife or whoever it might be to the authorities in order that justice might be done. The answer to your prayers may well come through the actions of the state. The authorities are God's servants. Which brings me then to a closing objection. What if? You see, the whole of Paul's argument in these verses seems to hinge on quite an important assumption given in verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Is that true or false? True or false? Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but only those who do wrong. Of course, experience tells us that this assumption that Paul uses certainly isn't always the case. We could think of many examples from perhaps the UK or certainly from around the world where governments reward those who do wrong and actually would persecute those who refuse to do wrong. You could even think of examples where governments actively persecute and pursue those who do right. And certainly there are countries in the world where it's illegal to be a Christian, where it's illegal to own a Bible, where it's illegal to share your faith with another, even your own children. How should a Christian respond in that situation? There may well be Christians here this morning who are from other countries. Perhaps you've come to the UK for a couple of years. You've learnt what it is to be a Christian. You've committed your life to Christ and yet you are due to return back to your home country. And when you get there, you might find that the authorities and the culture around you is much more antagonistic. There is much more hatred towards Christianity. And the law says that you must not be a Christian. You must not join a church. You must not own a Bible unless it is this particular modified Bible. You must not share your faith with others. What do you do in that situation? The authorities are telling you not to be a Christian, effectively. Even the Bible is telling you, submit to the authorities. What's the right thing to do? Well, this goes back to the fact that there are many different authorities that are over us. And we're called to submit to all types of different authority. When two authorities are at odds with each other, the principle is we follow the highest authority. And there is no higher authority than God himself. So if the government authorities teach you to do something that is contrary to God's instruction to you, that is contrary to God's word, then you know, in that instance, I must disobey the government authorities and I must obey God. I must always seek to obey God as the highest authority over my life. The answer is simple to understand, isn't it? But it might be much harder to put into practice if you're in that situation. Now, let's be careful here in making this exception. Because it would be all too easy to take this rule of exception and then use it to water down the whole passage. Ah, now we've got a little loophole. And if we can just poke our finger in that loophole and wiggle it a bit, 
The hall gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And soon we can swamp out the whole passage. It can die the death of a thousand qualifications. If only we're clever with how we think and how we accuse the government of being disobedient to God's word. Although there are exceptions to this plain teaching of Paul, the plain teaching is that we must continue to submit to the authorities in every area of life, except in those specific instances which would cause us to disobey God's command. So that means we can't use the ungodly laws of the government to justify our disobedience in another area of life. So you can't say, oh, well, I'm not going to pay my taxes because I disagree with the way with it being spent. Even if you say, I'm not going to take care of my taxes because they're used to support abortion. Or I'm not going to pay my taxes because they're used to support a regime like Saddam Hussein's. These verses are saying continue to submit to the authorities until they put you in direct contradiction of God's instruction to you. You shouldn't disrespect authority then just because you disagree with the way they govern. If there's one particular area that you think you've found this little loophole on, you need to check yourself. You need to check yourself. Because sin is deceptive. And sin will seek out a way of disobedient, uh, disobeying. And so if you think you've found this 0.1% chance of, of uh, disobeying the authorities, check. Check with other Christians. Check with the leaders of your church. Is this really a legitimate reason to disobey the authorities? Because in the vast majority of times, the instruction of God's word to us is submit to the authorities in every area of life. I hope the message is clear of what we should go and do uh, from this morning's passage. Each of us must submit uh, submit to the authorities as part of our submission to God.